I'll never forget the time when I was 11, 12, I think I was 12 years old, and my cousin Matt, uh, who is my dad's older brother's son, uh, was 11, and, and he and, and his dad, my Uncle Jerome, were visiting my parents' house in uh, Nashville, Tennessee, and where I grew up, grew up and, and we were goofing around one day, and the parental supervision must have been kind of checked out that day, because we were playing with BB guns. This is a BB gun. Don't freak out. But we were playing with BB. Gary's eyes just, Gary Johnson's eyes just went, what is he doing? This is just a BB gun, and it's not loaded. But we had, my dad had an air-powered pellet rifle, and uh, the safety's on. Um, and, and I had this, and I th always thought this was the coolest thing because it looked and it cocks like a 9 millimeter like that, and I thought it was really cool. And so this was back before I, you know, was more nonviolent uh, as I am now. And, and so, so we, were, we, were, we were out in the backyard, and we were shooting at trees and birds and cans and stuff and, and do, you know, just getting up to no good like middle school age boys do. And... Um, I was walking back toward the house at one point, and the, my parents' garage doors are on the back of their house. I'm walking towards the, the back door to go in the house, and I heard whizzing like that, and I, and I thought, what? And, and, and then before I could kind of figure out what had happened, it was a BB against the garage door, if you didn't catch that, ping. And, and, and before I could figure out what had happened, uh, this, ah, this pain shot through my whole body from my left shoulder. And I turned around, and Matt's standing there with the pellet rifle, with the eyes like Gary's were just a minute ago. And and uh, and he and he dropped the gun, and he goes, "Sorry, man!" And he tore off into the house, and I tore off after him in like a murderous rage. And uh, we got in the house. I chased him around the house, I, and I grabbed it. I remember grabbing a kitchen knife, a big kitchen knife, out of the kitchen. And again, this was before God called me to be a pacifist. And um, so I was chasing him around the house with this knife. And he managed to lock himself in one of the rooms, one of the bedrooms. And I sat, I was sitting up against the wall in the hallway, like this with this knife. I just remember, and the door was right there. And he was in there going, I'm sorry, man, I didn't mean to do it. And I'm like, you didn't mean to do it. You totally meant to sh shoot me. He took aim and fired. And I'm sitting there, and my parents came back, and his dad came back. And they're like, what are you doing? And I said, Matt, shot me in the back with the BB gun. And I seething, you know. And, and I don't remember exactly how it shook out, but I know that they took the knife away from me. And I, I would like to think that I was just wanted to scare him or threaten him, but I had pretty dark and tumultuous teenage years, so there's no telling how that could have <laughs> turned out. I might be incarcerated rather than being one of your pastors today. But um, they took the knife, and Matt had to come out and face his atrocity, and, um, which actually wasn't that bad. This thing had gone away by then, and it was you know, a little welt, and that was all. And we ended up being groomsmen in each other's weddings, and so there's no grudges being harbored, and fortunately... And so, uh, you know, some things like that are easy to forgive, and kids are pretty good at showing us, you know, how adept uh, we, we start out being at forgiveness, right? It was a little bit harder when I was in high school, and uh, the first girl I ever loved, there was a girl before Gloria, and, uh, but the first girl I ever loved told me that the summer before we started dating that she'd gone out on a date with a boy, and he forced himself on her and took something that I felt was very precious. It was harder to forgive that. And this person that was nameless and faceless to me that I never met, that I, I wouldn't have known then or now if you walked in the room, um, that this hatred and this anger and this unforgiveness that just ate me up. The Lord finally convicted me about it at a Promise Keepers rally that my dad took me to when I was about, I don't know, a junior. And uh, he said, you need to let go of that. 
And, uh, and I had to make a choice to forgive and to leave it in the hands of the one who says in Deuteronomy, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Um, I don't think I'm going out on a limb in a room like this uh, to say that probably all of us have had a struggle at one time or another with forgiveness. And we're all united this morning in that common struggle. Um, I typed a bunch of Bible verses into a website called Wordle, and it makes these word clouds that I think are really cool. And I took a bunch of verses that were from, uh, from the Old and New Testament about forgiveness, and, and, and what it does is it, it creates this word cloud, and it prioritizes uh, the words based on how frequently they occur and how important they are in the passage. And this is what it just auto-generated. And so I thought we'd use that kind of as our theme this morning. But forgiveness is a tough thing, and, you know, maybe for you it wasn't something that somebody did to you or to someone that you love, but maybe it's yourself, you know? Maybe we just don't let ourselves off the hook very easily, do we, for things that we've done. And even when we know that we know that we know that God has forgiven us, even when we know we can say with David in the Psalms that as far as the east is from the west, so he has removed our transgressions from us, even when we know that, we still struggle to give ourselves a break and to let it go. We know that God has forgiven, but the human mind doesn't work that way uh, to forgive and forget. Forgiven sin still feels kind of like sin to us, doesn't it? And maybe, maybe your anger isn't directed, hasn't been directed towards yourself, but maybe it's been directed heavenward. Maybe it's, it's God who you question and you, and you struggle to forgive God and you whisper why in your times of prayer or you scream, why? Why? Why does a God who can and who does intervene in the course of human history, who can and does heal, who can and does work miracles, who can and does control the forces of nature, although it's interesting that in Scripture, it's Satan who's called the God of this world and the prince of the air and who's been given authority, albeit limited authority, over the destructive forces of nature. And it's Jesus who says, peace, be still, and the winds and the waves die down. But we turn to God and we say, why? You, if you're God, you could do something about this. If you're God, you could heal. If you're God, you could have stopped that. And that's all true, but we struggle to understand how God allows, not causes, but allows certain things to happen. And we can't see the whole picture, and we struggle, and we become embittered. And that unforgiveness just eats us up, doesn't it? I think we probably all are thinking of something, or maybe a lot of things, in your life that has been this struggle for you. And we're all united in that common struggle. And fortunately, Jesus' disciples weren't any better off than we are. And uh, in the New Testament, Matthew 18, there's a good example of that. I'm going to put my gun away, I think. And uh, in Matthew 18, uh, there's a story that some of you probably heard before. And I just love it because it starts out, Peter comes to Jesus 
And uh, this is Matthew 18, 21. And so Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? And Peter thinks he's being really super spiritual here, doesn't he? He's like, okay, so somebody does something wrong to me, and I forgive him, and I forgive him, and I forgive him, and I forgive him, and forgive him, and forgive him, and forgive him. That's really, really like going overboard, isn't it? I mean, that's pretty generous. And, uh, and so Peter thinks, you know, I'm going to show him how super spiritual I am. And so Jesus answers in verse 22. Jesus says, I tell you not seven times, but 70 times seven. Or some translations, depend on, depends on how you render the Greek, but some translations say 70 times seven times, which if you're dumb with math like I am and you get your calculator out, that's 490. And so is Jesus being literal here? Is he kind of taking Peter's super spirituality and saying, you know, oh, I'll take your seven and multiply it by 11 or by 70, all right? No, is he being literal about this? No, he's saying, Peter, never place a limit on your willingness to forgive. And then he tells him this story. I like this about Jesus. He tells a lot of stories. I'm kind of a story-oriented guy. I was an English major, and, and, and I like stories. And so Jesus tells this story, and in my NIV, it says, the parable of the unmerciful servant. Sometimes it'll say unforgiving servant. And this begins with with verse 23, if you're following along. So, therefore, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And as he began began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Okay, this is one of his servants. He owed him 10,000 talents. Now, I I like to find out these kinds of things and do a little research. And so I wondered... 10,000 talents is money. Talent is a unit of money in biblical times. And, and if you've heard that, the other parable that Jesus tells about the talents, you've heard of, of talents before. But here's how it breaks down, and I just wanted us to all kind of get a, get a glimpse of this. One denarius in, G, in Jesus' time, in biblical times, would have been about a day's wage for an average wage earner. And a talent is worth 6,000 denarii. Did you know that was the plural of denarius? Denarii. I didn't. And so, so we're going to do some fast math here, but 6,000 denarii, 6,000 days wage equals one talent. And this guy owed his master 10,000 talents. So that is about, if you work about 300 days a year, I did the math on this, and that's about 200,000 years Wages. One talent is worth about 20 years' wages. And so 10,000 talents is worth 200,000 years. I didn't figure that out in lifetimes, but it's a lot, like more than one, right? <laughs> so <laughs> so this, this servant owed his master 10,000 talents. And since we don't deal in those terms and we deal in dollars, I decided to like equate this to dollars and it comes out to, if you, if you say an average wage is like $35,000 a year or something like that in 200,000 years wages, this is like $7 billion, okay? And it's still less than our national deficit, but that's a lot of money. <laughs> and, and so it's like Jesus is saying, this guy owed his master a million billion trillion dollars, right? I mean, he's just making up this ridiculous figure that you know you could never pay back. He owes his master a million billion trillion dollars, and so what, how would you feel if you owed anybody? What if you owed the mafia a million, billion, trillion dollars? You would be scared to death. You would never sleep. 
You would sleep with one eye open and the loaded gun under your pillow, probably. And, and so just imagine how much anxiety and how much fear and how much angst must have been within this guy to owe his master that. And I also wonder, how did he rack up this debt? I mean, that's like, what in the world? Gambling addiction or it seems like kind of a mistake on the part of the master to let it accumulate, maybe? Think about that as we go on. Uh, So the guy goes to his master, and uh, this is verse 25. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. And so the servant fell on his knees before him and said, be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. No, he's not going to pay back everything. He had 200,000 years wages. You're never going to pay back. No. I will pay back everything, he says. And the servant's master took pity on him and canceled the debt and let him go. Now, how would you feel about that? How would you feel about owing somebody a million, billion, trillion dollars, and then they just let you off the hook? I don't know the credit card companies nearly a million, billion, trillion dollars, but if they would just let me off the hook, I would be stoked, you know? <laughs> and so, I mean, just, just think about how being forgiven that kind of debt should, would, should change you reorient your priorities, change your whole outlook, change your heart. Wow. To be forgiven that kind of a debt. Well, nothing of the sort for this guy, all right? This jerk. He turns uh, and goes out. This is verse 28, Matthew 18. He goes out, and the servant went out, and he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. So go back to our math. That's a denarii, a day's wage. That's about 100 days' wage. Still quite a bit of money, maybe $10,000 to us, but nothing like a million, billion, trillion dollars. And he grabs this servant and begins to choke him and says, pay back what you owe me. What a jerk. And this is like right after, right? Can you imagine anybody who would even do this? And his fellow servant fell to his knees, this sounds familiar, and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. And instead he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay off the debt. How's he going to pay off the debt while he's in prison? That seems useless. And when the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed, and they went and they told their master everything that had happened. And so the master calls him in, and this is what he says, you wicked servant, I canceled all of that debt of yours because you begged me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you. And in his anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed, which we know is not going to happen. So why does Jesus use this story to respond to Peter's question about how many times he should forgive? Maybe he does it to reveal to Peter something about himself. Maybe he's wanting to hold a mirror up to Peter and say, you know, look, even your super spirituality, even your best attempt to be super spiritual seven whole times falls flat in the face of my kingdom and my economy and my outlook. Maybe that's what Jesus is doing. And I think that that may be part of it. But I think that Jesus, more importantly, 
is doing something, Jesus, the Word made flesh, is doing something that the Word of God always does, and he's giving us a glimpse of who God is. And in this case, we may not like the portrait of God that we see, and especially if we look at verse 35 and read Jesus' one-sentence explanation of this parable. Verse 35, this is how my heavenly Father will treat you, each of you, unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Ouch. Maybe we don't like this part. Maybe we don't like this God. (laughs) This God that Jesus points us to says to us, in the same measure that you forgive others, I will forgive you. We like it better when in other places in the New Testament, we, we kind of turn it around and we say, forgive others as I have forgiven you. Kind of like, my part's done, now you go do and do likewise. But, you know, we all kind of know it's really hard sometimes, and so maybe, maybe we're off the hook. Forgive others as I have forgiven you. No, this is how I will forgive you if you don't forgive your brother from your heart. Mm. It's a scary thought that God forgives us in the same measure that we forgive others. And I did a little research on the word forgive in the Greek, and it's much more nuanced. And uh, this isn't just to show off that my PhD was worthwhile, but it's much more nuanced in the Greek than it is in our our English word forgive. We just kind of tend to mean, you know, well, you apologize and I forgive you. But in the Greek, the the word that is translated forgive means to let go or to let be. When Jesus says, if somebody demands your coat, let them have your cloak as well, that's forgive. That's the word. It's also translated to depart or to leave one place and go to another. So when Satan tempts Jesus in the wilderness and then he leaves him alone, when he leaves Jesus, that's the same word as forgive. Or when Jesus leaves his sleepy-headed disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane to go off and pray by himself, when he leaves them, that's the same word as forgive. The King James has a lot of different interesting uh, translations, words to use for that same Greek word. And so in the King James, it's sometimes translated to suffer, as in to suffer a wrong. Or even when Jesus says, suffer the little children, come unto me. And it's also translated um, to lay aside when the man that Jesus healed, the lame man that Jesus healed, laid aside his mat to follow Jesus. That's forgive. That's the same word as forgive. And I think this is my favorite example. It also is translated to forsake. So when Jesus calls Simon Peter and his brother Andrew and they're fishermen, and they're cleaning their nets. And he says, come and follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. It says they forsook their nets. And that word is the same word as forgive. So why have I given you all that useless info? Because the biblical concept of forgiveness is bigger than just, okay, you apologized, and I forgive you. It's not only the idea that we associate with the word forgive, but it also means to suffer a wrong to allow an offense to pass, unpunished even, letting the offender off the hook, laying aside, letting go, letting it be, let, let, remember let? 
That's our word. There's this sense of leaving something behind and moving on to something new, just like with Peter and Andrew, a new calling, a new life, a better life. How is forgiveness a better life? I know in my story that I shared a little bit with you that, again, this person that did this horrible thing to the girl that I cared about, he didn't know me. I didn't know him. He probably slept fine at night, totally oblivious to the fact that this murderous rage reigned in my heart and in my life toward him. That's the rub, isn't it? The, the people that we don't forgive, a lot of times they're just clueless <laughs> to the fact that, we're, that we harbor this grudge. And they're just coasting through life. But does God want murderous rage and bitterness and unforgiveness and hatred to reign in my heart and my life? No, he wants Jesus to reign in my heart and in my life. Nothing other than Jesus. And so... I was stuck behind this huge obstacle on the path that God, this, I wasn't, I, this wasn't before I was a Christian or anything, people. This was, you know, I'm on the path that God has called me to be on. And then my unforgiveness is this huge impediment on that path that I'm stuck behind. And until I let that go, until I let it be, until I turn it over to God, I can't I can't get to where he wants me to be. I have to depart that life and that heart of unforgiveness, of anger, to continue on the path that he's called me to be on. And so maybe you've been there. Maybe you've been there, done that, got the T-shirt. I wonder how many are still stuck behind that obstacle, though. I wonder how many know exactly how hard it is. But God wants us to move into this life more abundant kind of existence that he's created for us and that he's dreamed for us. And we can't get there with forgiveness standing in the way. Man. We all know how difficult it is to forgive. We know this as individuals. We know this as Christians. But we also know this as a nation. And we're coming up on an important event in the life of our nation. And this week, and we're already seeing the tributes and the specials of what happened 10 years ago. We know how difficult this is. I want you to watch a video before we wrap up. Ten years ago was a different time. The economy was booming, 401ks were solid, and if asked, 8 out of 10 Americans wouldn't be able to define the word jihad. On that day, 10 years ago, something happened that changed everything. 10 years ago was a Tuesday. For most of us, our only connection to the events of that day was what we saw on television. However, we are all connected and that we all have a place. 
for some of us, it's a spot on the highway. For others, it's in an office. Or a coffee with a friend. It's the place we will never forget. The place where we watched it happen 10 years ago. So here we are, 10 years later, still hurt, still angry, still trying to understand why. 1 Corinthians 13 explains that we don't see things clearly right now. In essence, we just won't be able to understand in this lifetime things like what happened 10 years ago. However, it goes on to say that one day we will see all things clearly. But until that day comes, we have three things to embrace to help us in our reconciliation. Faith in God, unswerving hope, and love. And the greatest of the three is love. Through the shock and the horror, something else happened 10 years ago. Although the evil intentions appeared to be a success, our country embraced the complete opposite of what was intended. Instead of division, there was unity. Instead of confusion, there was clarity. Instead of falling apart, we banded together. But then again, that's the way one nation under God will always respond. As we reflect on what happened 10 years ago, it's okay to look back. And it's important that we remember what happened. And it's important and it's more than appropriate that we give thanks for servicemen and women of all sorts. And it's completely, uh, it's, it's essential that we, that we mourn and that we grieve the lives of 3,000 that were lost that day, but also the thousands upon thousands that have been lost, Americans and foreign citizens, in the war on terror since that time. But what is not okay is for us to harbor bitterness and anger and hatred and unforgiveness against the murderous individuals much less the entire culture and religion that they're a part of that we feel are responsible for what happened to us 10 years ago. It's not okay for a Christian following in the way of Jesus to hang on to that anger. And that's so hard, and I know that it's hard. But it's, it's important to recognize too, and hear me, hear what I'm saying and hear what I'm not saying. But the jihadists and their twisted interpretations of the Koran represent Islam no more than white supremacists or abortion clinic bombers represent our Christian faith. Am I saying that Muslims and Christians believe in the same God or that the Koran is as important as the Bible? Absolutely not. We have significant disagreements, religious disagreements. 
And unless they believe that Jesus was God, they don't believe in the same God as we do. Amen? But there are extremes and, and dangerous levels of fundamentalism within every religion, and Christianity is not innocent of that or exempt from that. Or maybe I should say Christianity isn't exempt from that or innocent of that. And so Jesus comes to us and he points us to a God that says, forgive in the same measure that I have forgiven you, or I will forgive you in the same measure that you forgive others. Did you know that the Bible is the only religious book, the only sacred text amongst all the world religions that teaches that God forgives sin completely? That, that gives us a picture of a God that doesn't hold the sin over us and we have to keep saying we're sorry over and over and over, that we have to keep doing penance, that we have to keep getting on our knees and groveling before him and making sacrifices. Christianity says, no, done. It's done. It's done. It's over. And God doesn't hold it against us. And we're unique in that. You knew there was a reason you were a Christian and that's it. <laughs> and not something else, right? Right? And this portrait of God is there throughout Scripture. In, in uh, 2 Chronicles, God tells King Solomon, and you know this, I love this passage, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear them from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. David writes in the Psalms, after his sin, after his adultery, blessed is he whose transgressions, he knew, whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him. In the words of the prophet Micah, who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives? You do not stay angry, but delight to show mercy. Paul to the Colossians, forgive as the Lord, who, as the Lord forgave you. Paul to the church at Ephesus, be kind and compassionate to each other, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Jesus, who says to lepers and laymen and adulterers, your sins are forgiven. Jesus, who taught his disciples to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Jesus, who takes the cup and he says, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus, who prayed to the Father for his executioners, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. How can we look at that and say, no, I will not forgive? If in Christ, God can forgive us for that, surely we can humble ourselves to obey our Savior who says to forgive, to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us, that the meek will inherit the earth, that the merciful will receive mercy, who teaches us blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. I don't know how we do this. Preacher's supposed to have the answers. I don't know how we forgive people who hate us and want to kill us. I don't know how we do that. But I know that this is what we're called to. We've been told that the world changed permanently at 8.46 a.m. on Tuesday, September the 11th, 2001, when that first plane hit the towers and that nothing would ever be the same after that. And in a sense, that's true, and we see it when we go through airport security and when we turn on the news. But we know that the world changed forever 
at noon on a Friday in Jerusalem in 33 AD when God hung on a cross and died. And three days later, when the tomb was empty and death was dead, that's the event that changed the world forever. Is September 11th important? Yes. Do we need to remember? Yes. But we know what really changed the world, and we know what really has changed our lives. One of my theological heroes is a man named Stanley Hauerwas, and he teaches ethics at Duke University. And he was on his way to ethics class on Tuesday morning, 9-11-01, and uh, when he heard that the first plane had hit the building. And he decided not to cancel class, uh, if no other reason than to pray. And so he wrote this prayer, and he said, Vulnerable, we feel vulnerable, God, and we are not used to feeling vulnerable. We are Americans nor are we used to anyone hating us this much. Such terrible acts, killing civilians, we are dumbfounded, we are lost, we are good people, we are a nation of peace. We do not seek war, we do not seek violence, but what are we to do? We not only feel vulnerable, but helpless. We're not sure what to feel except shock, which will quickly turn to anger, and even more suddenly to vengeance. We are Christians. What are we to do as Christians? We know that anger will come to us, and it does no good to tell ourselves not to be angry. To try not to be angry just makes us more furious. You, however, have given us something to do. We can pray, but we wonder what we can pray for. To pray for peace, to pray for the end of hate, to pray for the end of war seems so cliche at such a time. Yet when we pray, you make us your prayer for the world. So, Lord of peace, make us what you will. How can we pray this prayer? I don't know. But I know that we have to take a step and make a choice to let go of the anger and the hatred and the vengeance we harbor over what happened 10 years ago or what happened yesterday or what happened 30 years ago in your life that nobody knows about. We have to make a choice to let that go, to depart that old way and to move on to what God is calling us to do. And, and in our national psyche and our national identity, we have to make the choice to not buy into the fear that leads to indiscriminate prejudice against anyone who looks like an outsider, anyone who wears a funny head covering. We can't, we just can't. We can make, we can make a choice to extend an act of kindness toward the Muslim family that moves onto our street or the ones that shop with us at Kmart. They're in Xenia, <laughs> I'm sure you've noticed. And we can make a choice to smile instead of to turn the other way. To have a conversation. And to not buy into the fear, but instead to be filled with the Holy Spirit and the perfect love that drives out fear. Amen. And those are things that we can do. And whatever it is beyond this national event that we're focused on right now, and that we'll be commemorating next Sunday, whatever it is in your life that you may be holding on to, 
We have to ask God to give us the heart and the mind of Jesus, who came in grace and truth. We've been focusing on this through this last series, right? And too much grace, and we become doormats. The too much truth, and we find ourselves stuck behind that impediment, saying, no, I won't forgive. They were wrong, and it's true. They were wrong. And we're right, and it's true. It's mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. We're gonna move into a time, I feel like in a message like this, that you need to have some way to respond. And uh, so we've, we've, we've reached our, our response and our conclusion. The communion elements are gonna be available like they are at our pastoral prayer time. And the altars are gonna be open. And if you have things that you're dealing with on whatever level, I just wanna give you a chance to pray and to respond. The elements, the bread representing his body and the cup representing the blood of the new covenant that's poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And it's that and it's a remembrance and it's a commemoration, but it's also our meal of unity. It's a sign that we are, that we are people of peace. It's a sign that we are people who would rather die than kill. It's a sign of people who have forgiven in the same measure that we have been forgiven. It's a sign that we're one and that we go into the world with the reconciliation and the peace that Jesus has called us to. And so we're gonna watch a video and anytime during this, uh, try, try to catch the message of the video, but anytime during this, you can step out and, uh, and receive communion or come and pray, and then we'll, we'll close with a song, but just respond as you feel led right now. God, we don't know what to do with your word this morning. We know that your word demands a response. And so we turn to you and we say, make us what you will. Help us to be people who don't take for granted all that we've been forgiven. Help us to trust you and to trust the Holy Spirit make us into the people that we need to be so that we can forgive. Father, we do want to honor you. We want to be the people that you've called us to be. And yet, it's so hard to let go of the things that we can't forget. Help us to make the choice daily to lay it down let it go, to move on so that we can become the people that you want us to be. Thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for sending Jesus and for taking all of our sin on yourself, giving us hope and giving us victory over death. Help us to never take that for granted. Thank you, and we praise you, and we pray all this in the name of the one who taught us to pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. 